are listening to the most original talk radio station anywhere. We are L.A. Talk Radio at latalkradio.com. You can support Sapphire Planet by visiting the online store at sapphireplanet.com. Welcome. Your journey is just beginning. You are now entering the Sapphire Planet. Ernest Shackleton, commander of the ship Endurance, now has to make a terrible decision. His only decision, really, which is to take the lifeboats and journey to Elephant Island. The end of Patience Camp was signaled on the evening of April 8th, when the flow suddenly split. The camp now found itself on a small triangular raft of ice. A breakup of this would mean disaster, so Shackleton ready the lifeboats for the party's enforced departure. He had now decided they would try, if possible, to reach the distant Deception Island because a small wooden church had been reportedly erected for the benefit of whalers. This could provide a source of timber that might enable them to construct a seaworthy boat. At 1 p.m. on April 9th, the Dudley Docker was launched, and an hour later, all three boats were away. Shackleton himself commanded the James Caird, Worsley, the Dudley Docker, and navigation officer Hubert Hudson was nominally in charge of the Stancombe Wills, though because of his precarious mental state, the effective commander was Tom Keane. The boats were surrounded by ice, dependent upon leads of water opening up. A progress was perilous and erratic, Frequently the boats were tied to flows, or dragged up on them while the men camped and waited for conditions to improve. Shackleton was wavering again between several potential destinations, and on April 12th rejected the various island options and decided on Hope Bay at the very tip of Graham Land. However, conditions in the boats in temperatures some as low as minus 20 degrees Fahrenheit or minus 30 degrees centigrade with little food and regular soakings in icing water, were wearing the men down, physically and mentally. Shackleton therefore decided that Elephant Island, the nearest of the possible refuges, was now the only practical option. On April 14th, the boats lay off the southeast coast of Elephant Island, but could not land there, since the shore consisted of perpendicular cliffs and glaciers. Next day, the James Caird rounded the eastern point of the island to reach the northern lee shore and discovered a narrow shingle beach. Soon afterwards, the three boats, which had been separated during the previous night, were reunited at this landing place. However, it was apparent from high tide markings that this beach would not serve as a long-term camp. The next day, Wild and a crew set off in the Stancombe Wills to explore the coast for a safer site. They returned of news of a long spit of sand seven miles to the west. With minimum delay, the men returned to the boats and transferred to this new location, which they later christened Point Wild. Elephant Island was a remote, uninhabited, and rarely visited by whalers or any other ships. 
If the party was returned to civilization, it would be necessary to summon help. The only realistic way this could be done was to adapt one of the lifeboats for an 800-mile voyage across the southern ocean to south-southern Georgia. Shackleton had abandoned thoughts of taking the party on the less dangerous journey to a deception island because of the poor physical condition of many of his party. Port Stanley in the Falkland Islands was closer than South Georgia, but could not be reached as this would require sailing against the strong prevailing winds. Shackleton selected the boat party himself. Worsley as navigator, Crean, McNish, John Vincent, and Timothy McCarthy. On instructions from Shackleton, McNish immediately set about adapting the James Carrot, improvising tools and materials. Frank Wilde was left in charge of Elephant Island Party with instructions to make for Deception Island the following spring, should Shackleton not return. Shackleton took supplies for only four weeks, knowing that if the land had not been reached within that time, the boat would be lost. The 22 and a half foot James Caird was launched on April 24, 1916. The success of the voyage depended on the pinpoint accuracy of Worsley's navigation using observations that would have been made in the most unfavorable of conditions. The prevailing wind was helpful northwest, but the sea heavy condition quickly soaked everything in icy water. Soon ice settled thickly on the boat, making her ride sluggishly. On May 5th, a northwesterly gale almost caught the boat's destruction as it faced what Shackleton described as the largest waves he had ever seen in 26 years at sea. On May 8th, South Georgia was sighted after a 14-day battle with the elements that had driven the boat party to their physical limits. Two days later, after a prolonged struggle with heavy seas and hurricane-force winds to the south of the island, the party struggled ashore at King Hakan Bay. The arrival of the James Carrot at King Hakan Bay was followed by a period of rest and recuperation while Shackleton pondered the next move. The populated whaling stations of South Georgia lay on the northern coast. To reach them would mean either another boat journey around the island or a land crossing through the unexplored interior. The condition of the James Carrot and the physical state of the party, particularly Vincent and McNish, meant the crossing was the only realistic option. After five days, the party took the boat a short distance eastward to the head of a deep bay, which would be a starting point for the crossing. Shackleton, Worsley, and Crean would undertake the land journey, the others remaining at what they christened Peggotty Camp, to be picked up later after help had been obtained from the whaling station. A storm on May 18th delayed their start, but by 2 o'clock the following morning, the weather was clear and calm, and an hour later the crossing party set out. Without a map, the route they chose was largely conjectural. By dawn they had ascended to 3,000 feet and couldn't see the northern coast. They were above Possession Bay, which meant they needed to move eastward to reach their intended destination of Stromus. This meant the first of several backtrackings that would extend the journey and frustrate the men. At the close of the first day, needing to descend to the valley below them before nightfall, they risked everything by sliding down a mountainside of makeshift rope sledge. There was no question of rest. They traveled by moonlit, moving upwards towards the gap in the next mountainous ridge. Early next morning, May 21st, see, seeing Huskvik Harbor below them, they knew they were on the right path. At 7 o'clock in the morning, they heard the steam whistle sound from Stromness, the first sound created by an outside human agency that had come to our ears since we've left Stromness Bay in December 1914. After a difficult descent, which involved passage down through a freezing waterfall, they at last reached safely. Shackleton wrote afterwards, I have no doubt that Providence guided us. I know that during that long and racking march of 36 hours over the unnamed mountains and glaciers, it seemed to me often that we were four, not three. This image of a fourth traveler, echoed in the accounts of Worsley and Cream, was taken up by T.S. Eliot in his poem, 
The Wasteland. Shackleton's first task on arriving at Stromness Station was to arrange for his three companions at Pegagot Camp to be picked up. A whaler was sent around the coast with Worsley aboard to show the way, and by the evening of May 21st, all six of the James Caird party were safe. It took four attempts before Shackleton was able to return to Elephant Island to rescue the party stranded there. He first left South Georgia a mere three days after he arrived in Strumness, after securing the use of a large whaler, the Southern Sky, which was laid up in Huskvik Harbor. Shackleton assembled a volunteer crew, which had it ready to sail by the morning of May 22nd. As the vessel approached Elephant Island, they saw the impenetrable barrier of pack ice had formed some 70 miles from the island. The southern sky was not built for ice breaking and retreated to Port Stanley in the Falkland Islands. On reaching Port Stanley, Shackleton informed London by cable of his whereabouts and requested that a suitable vessel be sent south for rescue operation. He was informed by the Admiralty that nothing was available before October, which in his view was too late. Then, with the help of the British minister on Montevideo, Shackleton obtained from the Ugarian government a loan of a tow trawler, Institute de Pesca No. 1, which started south on June 10th. Again, the pack ice thwarted them. In search of another ship, Shackleton, Worsley, and Cream traveled to Punta Arnes in Chile, where they met Alan MacDonald, the British owner of the schooner Emma. MacDonald equipped this vessel for further rescue attempt, which left on July 12th, but with the same negative result. The pack defeated them yet again. Shackleton later named a glacier after MacDonald on the Brunt ice shelf in the Weddell Sea. After problems arose on identifying this glacier, a nearby ice rise was renamed the MacDonald Ice Rumples. By now, it was mid-August, and more than three months since Shackleton left the Elephant Island. Shackleton begged the Chilean government to lend him Yelko, a small steam tug that assisted Emma during the previous attempt. The government agreed, and on August 25th, Yelko, captained by Luis Pardo, set out for Elephant Island. This time, as Shackleton records, Providence favored them. The seas were open, and the ship was able to approach close to the island in thick fog. At 11.40 a.m. on August 30th, the fog lifted, and the camp was spotted, and within an hour, all the elephant party on them were safely aboard, bound for Punta Arnes. After Shackleton left the James Carrot, Frank Wilde took command of Elephant Island Party, some of whom were in a low state, physically or mentally. Lewis Rickinson had suffered a suspected heart attack. Blackborough was unable to walk due to frostbitten feet. Hudson was mentally depressed. The priority for the party was a permanent shelter against the rapidly approaching southern winter. On the suggestion of Martson and Lionel Greenstreet, a hut, nicknamed the Snuggery, was improvised by upturning the two boats and placing them on low stone walls to provide around five feet of headroom. By means of canvas and other material, the structure was made into a crude but effective shelter. Wild initially estimated this would have weighed a month for rescue and refused to allow long-term stockpiling of seal and penguin meat because this, in his view, was defeatist. This policy led to sharp disagreements with Thomas Ord's Lees. Ord's Lees was not a popular man and his presence apparently did little to improve the morale of his companion unless it was by the way of being the butt of their jokes. As the weeks extended well beyond his initial optimistic forecast, Wilde established and maintained routines and activities to relieve the tedium. A permanent lookout was kept for the arrival of the rescue ship. Cooking and housekeeping rotations were established, and there were hunting trips for seal and penguin. Concerts were held on Saturdays and anniversaries celebrated but there was a growing feeling of despondency as time passed with no sign of the ship. The toes on Black Rose's left foot became gangrenous from frostbite, and on June 15th had to be amputated, amputated by the surgeon Macklin and James McIlroy in the candlelit hut. 
using the very last of the chloroform that had survived in the medical supplies. The whole procedure took 55 minutes and was a complete success. By August 23rd, it seemed that Wilde's no stockpiling policy had failed. The surrounding sea was dense with pack ice that would have halted any rescue ship. Food supplies were running out and no penguins were coming ashore. Ord Lees wrote, We shall have to eat the one who dies first. There's many a true word said in jest. Wilde's thoughts were now turning seriously to the possibility of a boat trip to Deception Island. He planned to set out on, December, on October 5th in the hoping of meeting a whaling ship. When, on August 30th, 1916, the ordeal on Elephant Island ended suddenly with the appearance of Shackleton on the ship Yelkcho. The rescued party, having had its last contract with civilization in 1940, 1914, was unaware of the course of the World War I. News of Shackleton's safe arrival in the Falklands briefly eclipsed war news in the British newspapers on June 2, 1916. The expedition returned home in piecemeal fashion at a critical stage in the war without the normal honors and civic receptions. When Shackleton himself finally arrived in England on May 29, 1917, after a short American lecture tour, his return was barely noticed. Most of the members of the expedition returned to take up immediate active military or naval service. Before the war ended, too, Tim McCarthy of the Open Boat Journey and the veteran Antarctic sailor Alfred Cheatham had been killed in action during World War I, and Ernest Wilde of the Ross Sea Party had died of typhoid while serving in the Mediterranean during World War I as well. Several others were severely wounded, and many received decorations for gallantry. Following a propaganda mission in Buenos Aires, Shackleton was employed during the last weeks of the war on special service in Murmansk with the army rank of major. This occupied him until March 1919. He thereafter organized one final Antarctic expedition, the Shackleton Rowett Expedition on the ship Quest which left London on September 17, 1921. Shackleton, unfortunately, died of a heart attack on January 5, 1922, while the ship Quest was anchored in South Georgia. Wilde, Worsley, Macklin, McGillroy, Hussey, Alexander Kerr, Thomas McLeod, and Cook Charles Green from Endurance all sailed with the Quest. After Shackleton's death, the original program, which had included an exploration, exploration of Enderbury land, was abandoned. Wilde led a brief cruise which brought them into sight of Elephant Island. They anchored off Cape Wilde and were able to see old landmarks, but sea conditions made it impossible for them to land. It would be more than 40 years before the first crossing of the Antarctic was achieved by the Commonwealth Trans-Antarctic Expedition 1955-1958. This expedition set out from Vahasail Bay, following the route which avoided the Beardmore Glacier altogether and bypassed much of the Ross Ice Shelf, reaching McMurdo Sound via a distinct of set of Skeleton Glacier. Their journey took 98 days. What is lost to history is what happened to the other half of the endurance quest to go across the Antarctic. They were known as the Ross Sea Party, and they were a group of men to support Shackleton once he right reached the South Pole as he crossed the Antarctic and back to Australia and New Zealand. The Ross Sea Party was a component of Sir Ernest Shackleton's Imperial Trans-Antarctic Expedition of 1914 through 1917. Its task was to lay a series of supply depots against across the Great Ice Barrier from the Ross Sea to the Beardmore Glacier, 
along the polar route established by earlier Antarctic expeditions. The expedition's main party, under Shackleton, was to land on the opposite Wendell Sea of Antarctic and march across the continent via the South Pole to the Ross Sea. As the main party would be unable to carry sufficient fuel and supplies for the whole distance, their survival depended on the Ross Sea Party's depots, which would cover the final quarter of their journey. Shackleton set sail from London on his ship Endurance, bound from the Wendell Sea on August 1914. Meanwhile, the Ross Sea Party personnel gathered in Australia prior to the departure for the Ross Sea in the second expedition ship, S.Y. Aurora. Organizational and financial problems delayed their start until December 1914, which shortened their first depot-laying season. After their arrival, the inexperienced party struggled to master the art of Antarctic travel, in the process losing most of their sled dogs. A greater misfortune occurred when on the onset of southern winter, Aurora was torn from its moorings during a severe storm and was unable to return, leaving the shore party stranded. Despite these setbacks, the Ross Sea Party survived interpersonal disputes, extreme weather, illness, and the deaths of three of its members to carry out its mission in full during its second Antarctic season. This success provided ultimately without purpose because Shackleton's main expedition was unable to land the Endurance, was crushed in the Weddell Sea. Shackleton eventually led his men to safety, but the transcontinental march did not take place and the Ross Sea Party's depots were not required. The Ross Sea Party remained stranded until January 1917 when the Aurora, which had been repaired and refitted in New Zealand, arrived to rescue them. Public recognition of their efforts was slow in coming, but in due course four Albert Medals were awarded to members of the party, who, two of them posthumously. Shackleton later wrote that those who died gave their lives for their country just as surely as those who gave up their lives in France or Flanders. A gentleman by the name of Mackintosh was de decided to be the captain of the Aurora, and the nucleus of the party arrived in Sydney, Australia, late in October 1914. They were shocked to find that the Aurora was in no condition for an Antarctic voyage and required an extensive overhaul. Furthermore, Shackleton had apparently misunderstood the terms under which he acquired the vessel from Mawson. Even the registration of the ship in Shackleton's name had not been properly completed. Mawson, the previous owner, had reclaimed much of the equipment and stores that had been aboard, essential navigation instruments, as well as basic necessities in the ship's living quarters. All needed replacing. To compound the problem, Shackleton had reduced the funds available to Macintosh from 2,000 sterlings to 1,000 sterlings. Expecting him to bridge the difference by soliciting for supplies as free gifts and by mortgaging the ship. There was no cash available to cover the wages and living expenses for the party. Shackleton was now beyond reach aboard the Endurance en route for Antarctica. Supporters of the expedition in Australia notably Edgeward David, who had served as the chief scientist on the Nidmrod expeditions, were concerned at the plight in which Macintosh party had been placed. They helped to raise sufficient funds to keep the expedition alive, but several members of the party resigned or abandoned the venture. Some of the last minute replacements were raw recruits. Adrian Donnelly, a locomotive engineer with no sea experience, signed as second engineer, while wireless operator Lionel Hook was an 18-year-old electrical apprentice. Despite these difficulties, progress was sufficient for the Aurora to set sail from Sydney on December 15, 1914, bound for Hobart, where she arrived on December 20th to take the final stores and fuel before departing south. On, on December 24th, 
three weeks later than the original target date, the Aurora finally sailed for the Antarctic, arriving on Ross Island on January 16, 1915. McIntosh decided to establish a shore base at Cape Evans, Captain Scott's headquarters during the 1910-1913 Terra Nova expeditions, and to find a safe winter mooring nearby for Aurora. After the conquest of the South Pole by Ronald Amundsen in December 1911, Shackleton has sought this achievement himself, was forced to rethink his polar ambitions. He believed they remained one great main objective of Antarctic journeying and crossing of the South Polar continent from sea to sea. Shackleton described depot laying as the vital to the success of the whole undertaking but believed it would not present any great difficulties in execution. Wow, was he wrong. The Ross Sea Party's vessel would be the Aurora, a ship recently used by Douglas Mawson and the Australasian Antarctic Expedition. Shackleton needed people to join the Ross Sea Party. So, to lead the Ross Sea Party, Shackleton chose Uranus McIntosh, Having first attempted to persuade the Admiralty to provide him with a naval crew, McIntosh, like Shackleton, was a former merchant navy, navy officer who had been on the Nimrod expedition until his participation was cut short by an accident that resulted in the loss of his right eye. Another Nimrod veteran, Ernest Joyce, whose Antarctic experience had begun with the Captain Scott Discovery Expedition, was appointed to take charge of sledding and dogs. Joyce was described by Shackleton's biographer Roland Huntford as a strange mixture of fraud, flamboyance, and ability. But his depot-laying work during the Nimrod expedition had impressed Shackleton. Ernest Wilde, a Royal Naval Petal officer, was added to the party possibly through the persuasion of his brother Frank Wilde who was traveling as Shackleton's second-in-command on the other ship, the Endurance. Some of the appointments to the party were made rather hurriedly, reflecting on the limited time frame that Shackleton had allowed for preliminary organization. Joseph Stenhouse, a young officer from the British Indian Steam Navigation Company, was appointed the Aurora's first officer after traveling from Australia to London to seek an interview with Shackleton. The Reverend Arnold Spencer Smith, a Scottish Episcopalian church priest and former schoolmaster, joined as a replacement for one of the original members of the expedition who had left for active service in the First World War. Victor Hayward, a London finance clerk with a taste of adventure, was recruited on his basis of having worked on a ranch in Canada. Although the Ross Sea Party's main role was to lay supply depots, Shackleton's program required a scientific team to carry out biological, meteorological, and magnetic research in the region. The chief scientist was Alexander Stevens, a Scot Scottish geologist and former theological student. John Cope, a 21-year-old Cambridge graduate, was the team's biologist, a would-be medical student he later became the ship's surgeon. Two other scientists were appointed in Australia. The physicist Dick Richards, who signed up for the nominal wage of one shilling per week, and the industrial chemist Keith Jack. An Australian cousin of Spencer Smith, Irvin Gaze, was taken on as a general assistant. The first season, which was the years 1914 through 1915, which began the depot laying in January, March 1915. Believing that Shackleton might attempt the crossing during the first season, McIntosh decided that the first two depots had to be laid without delay. One at 79 degrees south near Minna Bluff, a prominent barrier landmark, and another further south at 80 degree mark. 
There were, in his view, the minimum that would enable Shackleton's party to survive a crossing of the barrier. The delayed arrival of Aurora in the Antarctic had given little time for acclimatization for the dogs and for the untrained men, and this led to the difference of view about how to proceed. Ernest Joyce, by far the most experienced Antarctic traveler in the party, favored a cautious approach and wanted to delay the start by at least a week. Joyce claimed that Shackleton had given him independent control over the sledding activities, a view rejected by Captain McIntosh and later demonstrated as without foundation. McIntosh's view, having prevailed, on January 24, 1915, the first of three parties set out for the barrier journey, the others following on the next day. Further dissension soon arose between Joyce and McIntosh about how far south the dogs should be taken. Joyce wanted them to go no further than the bluff, but McIntosh's sense of urgency meant that they were taken all the way to 80 degrees south. A further setback was the failure of the attempts to move stores by motor tractor. Although ultimately the depots were laid at Minna Bluff at 80 degrees south, the overall operation was beset by problems. Not all the stores had reached the depots, and as well as the motor tractor failure, all ten dogs taken on the journey perished on the return back. By the time all the parties were united at Hut Point on March 25th, the men themselves were exhausted and frostbitten, and their significant loss of confidence in Captain McIntosh. The condition of the sea ice in McMurdo Sound made the journey back to Cape Evans impossible, so the party was stranded until June 1st in Spartan conditions and relying on seals for fresh meat and blubber fuel. It was later revealed that the first depot laying season and an attendant hardships had been unnecessary. Shackleton had stated in a letter sent from South Georgia on December 5, 1914, the date that Endurance left South Georgia for the Weddell Sea, to Ernest Paris of the Daily Chronicle, that he had no chance of crossing that season. McIntosh was to have been informed of this, but, tragically, the cable was never sent. When Captain McIntosh departed on January 25, 1915, to lead the depot-laying parties, he left the Aurora under command of First Officer Joseph Stenhouse. The priority task for Stenhouse was to find a winter anchorage in accordance with Shackleton's instructions not to attempt to anchor south of Glacier Tongue, an icy protrusion midway between Cape Evans and Hut Point. This search proved a long and hazardous process. Stenhouse maneuvered in the sound for several weeks before eventually deciding to winter close to Cape Evans Shore headquarters. After a final visit to Hut Point on March 11th, to pick up four early returners from the depot laying parties, he brought the ship to Cape Evans and made it fast with anchors and hawsers, thereafter allowing it to become frozen in the shore ice. On the night of May 7th, a severe gale erupted, tearing the aurora from its moorings and carrying it out to sea attached to a large ice floe. Attempts to contact the shore party by wireless failed. Held fast and with his engines out of commission, the Aurora began a long drift northward, away from Cape Evans, out of McMurdo Sound, into the Ross Sea, and eventually into the Southern Ocean. Tragically, ten men were left stranded ashore at Cape Evans. 
Aurora finally broke free from the ice on February 12, 1916, and sailed without the men for New Zealand, arriving on April 2nd. Because Captain McIntosh had intended to use Aurora as the party's main living quarters, most of the shore party's personal gear, food, equipment, and fuel was still on board when the ship departed. Although the sledging rations intended for Shackleton's depot had been landed, the ten stranded men were left with only the clothes on their backs with no knowledge of the ship's whereabouts, or when or if it might return. The men were dependent on their own initiative and resourcefulness for their survival and for the completion of their depot-laying task. McIntosh now summarized their situation thus. We have to face the possibility that we may have to stay here unsupported for two years. We cannot expect rescue before then, so we must conserve and economize on what we have, and we must seek and apply what substitutes we can gather. Their first recourse was to the food and materials from the supplies left behind by Scott's and Shackleton's earlier expeditions. These supplies provided a harvest of material which enabled clothing, footwear, and equipment to be improvised, while the party used seal meat and blubber as extra sources of food and fuel. Joyce's famous tailoring shop fashioned clothing from large canvas tents abandoned by Scott's previous expedition. Even a brand of tobacco, Hut Point Mixture, was concocted by Ernest Wilde from sawdust tea, coffee, and a few dry herbs. By these means, the party equipped itself for the sledging journey that lay ahead on the second season. On the last day of August, McIntosh surmised in his diary the work that had been completed during the winter and ended, Tomorrow we start for Hut Point. The second depot laying season, 1915 through 1916. The journey to Mount Hope. The second season's work was planned in three stages. First, all depot stores, 3,800 pounds in total, were to be transferred from Cape Evans to Hut Point. These stores would be transported from Hut Point to a base depot at Minima Bluff. Finally, a journey south would be made to reinforce the 80 degrees south depot and lay a new ones at 81 degrees, 82 degrees, and 83 degrees south. And lastly, at Mount Hope, near the foot of the Beardmore Glacier, at 83 degrees south, nine men in teams of three would undertake the sledding work the first stage, hauling over the ice sea to Hut Point, started on September 1, 1915, and was completed without mishap by the end of the month. The second stage, hauling back and forth between Hut Point and the bluff, provided more problematic with unfavorable weather and difficult barrier surface and more dissension between McIntosh and Joyce over methods. This time, McIntosh favored man-hauling, while Joyce wanted to use the four fit dogs of the six dogs that had survived the winter. Two were pregnant and could not work. McIntosh allowed Joyce to proceed in his own way, leading a party of six with the dogs, while McIntosh continued to man-haul with Wild and Spencer Smith. Joyce's methods provided the more effective in terms of load carried and the fitness of the men. The base depot at Minima Bluff was completed by December 28th. Shortly 
after the main march to Mount Hope began on January 1, 1916. The failure of a Primus stove led to the three men, Cope, Jack, and Gaze, returning to Camp Evans, where they joined Stevens. The scientists had remained at the base to take weather measurements and watch for the ship. The remaining six sledged south with Spencer Smith failing rapidly and McIntosh complaining of a painful knee. They battled on, laying the depots, using only minimum provisions themselves, although at Joyce's insistence, keeping the dogs well fed. He said that the dogs are our only hope our lives depend on them. As they neared Mount Hope, Spencer Smith collapsed, unable to proceed. The others left him alone in a small tent and tra traveled the remaining few miles to lay the final depot at Mount Hope on January 26, 1916. Ernest Wilde left a letter for his brother Frank, whom he imagined was traveling across from the Weddell Sea with Shackleton. The party turned for home on January 27th, picking up Spencer Smith on the 29th. He was by now physically helpless and had to load on the sled. McIntosh was soon unable to pull and he could only stagger alongside, beside the sled. By this time, the de facto leadership of the group had passed to Joyce and Richard. Joyce surmised that situation. I have never known such shocking conditions. This is one of the hardest pulls since we have all trekked, all we can do is slog on with the greatest of possible speeds. In spite of their difficulties, the party made good progress until, on February 17th, about 10 miles short of the Bluff Depot, they were halted by a blizzard. They remained tent-bound for five days, by which time their supplies had run out. In desperation, the party left the tent the next day, but it soon provided impossible for Captain McIntosh and Spencer Smith to travel further. Joyce, Richards, and Hayward then sledded through the blizzard to the depot, leaving the invalids in a tent under the care of Wild. This round trip of about 20 miles took them a week to complete. They returned with food and fuel to sustain their comrades and marched resumed. Within a short time, McIntosh joined Spencer Smith on the sled and before long Hayward too had collapsed. The three men still on their feet were now too weak to haul three invalids. So on March 8th, Captain McIntosh volunteered to stay in the tent while the others attempted to take Spencer Smith and Hayward to Hut Point. A day later, Spencer Smith died, utterly worn out by exhaustion, exhaustion and scurvy, and was buried in the ice. Joyce and Wilde reached Hut Point with Hayward on March 11th and went back for McIntosh. By March 16th, the whole surviving party had reached the hut. From the starting point of hauling loads from Cave Evans on September 1st, 1915, to the arrival of the survivors back at Hut Point. A total of 198 days had passed, the longest sledding journey in terms of elapsed time undertaken on any expedition up until that time. The five survivors were slowly recovering their strength with a diet of seal meat. The ice was too thin for them to risk the final trip to Cape Evans, and the monotony of their diet and the surroundings became wearisome. On May 8th, Captain McIntosh announced that he and Hayward intended to risk the ice and walk to Cape Evans. Against the strenuous objections of their companions, they departed, and within an hour disappeared in the blizzard. The others went to look for them after the storm and found only tracks leading to the edge of the broken ice. McIntosh and Hayward were never seen again. They had either fallen through the thin ice or had been carried out to sea on an ice floe. Richards, Joyce, and Wilde waited until July 15th to make the trip to Cape Evans, 
where they last reunited with Stevens, Cope, Jack Gaze, and despite their partial lunar eclipse, which reduced the amount of lighting during the crossing, they made it. After the Aurora's arrival in New Zealand on April 16th, Stenhouse began the task of raising funds for the ship's repair and refit prior to its return to Antarctica to rescue the ten maroon men. This provided difficult. Nothing had been heard from Shackleson since Endurance had left South Georgia on December 1914, and it was now two years later, and it seemed likely that relief expeditions were necessary for both strands of the expedition. However, the Imperial Transantarctic Expedition was completely out of funds and there was no obvious alternative source of finance. Given the chaotic financial circumstance in which the Aurora had departed from Australia, private subscribers were hard to find. Finally, the governments of Australia, New Zealand and Great Britain agreed jointly to fund the refit of Aurora but insisted on their joint committee having full control of relief expeditions. On May 18th, Shackleton arrived at the Falkland Islands with the story of his escape after the loss of the Endurance in the Weddell Sea. His first priority was to effect rescue on the rest of the Weddell Sea Party, stranded on Elephant Island, and it was early December before he arrived in New Zealand he was too late to influence the organization of the Ross Sea Party's relief. The Joint Committee had appointed John King Davis to lead the expedition and had dismissed Stenhouse and Aurora's other officers. Davis was a veteran of Mawson's recent Australian expedition and had turned down Shackleton's offer in 1914 of the command of either the Endurance or the Aurora. As a jester, Shackleton was permitted to sail as a supernariacy officer when the ship left on December 20th. On January 10th, 1917, when the Aurora reached Cape Evans, the survivors were astonished to see Shackleton approaching them, and then they learned for the first time the futility of their labors. After a further week spent in vain searching for the bodies of McIntosh and Hayward, Aurora headed north for New Zealand, carrying the seven survivors of the original shore party. The Discovery and Terra Nova huts remain protected by the Antarctic Heritage Trust and the New Zealand government. Within the Cape Evans hut is an inscription by Richards on the wall near his bunk listing the names of those lost can still be read, but the generally deteriorating conditions of the hut has caused concern. The Aurora survived for less than a year after her final return from the Ross Sea. Shackleton had sold her for a 10,000 sterling, and her new role as a coal carrier between Australia and South America. She disappeared in the Pacific Ocean on or about January 2nd, 1918, having either foundered in a storm or had been sunk by an enemy raider. Aboard her was James Patton of the Ross Sea Ship Party, who was still serving as her boatswain. Ernest Wilde was also a victim of the First World War. He died of typhoid in Malta on March 10, 1918, while serving with the Royal Navy in the Mediterranean. On July 4, 1923, Joyce and Richards were awarded Albert Medals by George V for their bravery and life-saving efforts during the second depot-laying journey. Wilde and Victor Hayward received the same award posthumously. Many of the survivors enjoyed long and successful careers. The young wireless operator Lionel Hook joined the Amalgamated Wireless Australasian Limited and was responsible for many technological innovations. He became the company's managing director in 1945 and its chairman in 1962, having been knighted for his services to industry in 1957. Of the four dogs who survived the trek, Khan was killed by the other dogs in a fight before the rescue. 
The others, Oscar, Gunner, Townser, returned to the ship to New Zealand and were placed in the Wellington Zoo, where Oscar lived, allegedly, to the age of 25. Near the end of his life, Dick Richards, the last survivor of the party, was without regrets and did not regard the struggle as futile. Rather, he believed it was something that the human spirit had accomplished and that no undertaking carried through to its conclusion was for nothing. Your journey is now ending. You are now leaving the Sapphire Planet. Goodbye from the Sapphire Planet. Own a piece of the planet. Now you can purchase Sapphire Planet merchandise online at sapphireplanet.com.